What's more hurtful to the movement is somebody saying the the solution is let's just, just not put Lucian in there. Let's just put somebody else in there because right. they're of color, and we solved it. Right? Yes. You got to unpack, and the unpacking of it is well, why is it that there's only these to your point white executives yeah. that are at the very tops of these companies? You know, you know, on down to hey, our internship program's not right. Right, because you don't want to just put a band aid on this bullet wound. Exactly. And by That's, just replacing, he's like, all right, Lucian, sorry, you're gone. We're putting in uh, some black person just mm-hmm. so we can, like, check this off. Mm-hmm. And then the system- systemic issues are still maintained throughout the yep. entire yep. ecosystem of the company. This episode is brought to you by the Mechanical Licensing Collective, also known as the MLC. Those are a lot of scary words you probably don't understand. Let me break it down for you what this means. If you want to collect your streaming royalties and you're a songwriter you probably are going to want to sign up for the MLC. Now, this is for any songwriter or publisher that isn't currently signed up with a mechanical rights organization. In the U.S., this is virtually every songwriter without a publisher. What the MLC is, is they collect mechanical royalties from streaming services. So, if you're a songwriter, there are two kinds of royalties that you're going to earn when your song is streamed on streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music. Those streaming royalties are, again, for songwriters, performance royalties and mechanical royalties. Performance royalties, they go to the PROs in the states that ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, global music rights, that kind of stuff. And the mechanical royalties, guess what? They only go to one organization. That's the Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC. The MLC, if you've never heard of them, it's because they're very new. They just started in January of 2021, and they were set up by Congress, the Copyright Office, because this was a law that was passed, the Music Modernization Act of 2018. This is the law that created the MLC, because before... The streaming services didn't know where to send all that money. They would send it to Harry Fox. They'd send her music reports. They didn't know who the publishers were. That's where they're getting sued. So everybody came together like, please stop suing us. And the music industry is like, all right, fine. But we need an organization that you're going to pay for streaming services. And we want all our money. Everyone's like, all right, if you stop suing us, cool. So they created the MLC. If you're an independent songwriter and you do not have a publishing company, You should sign up for the MLC. Just like you sign up for a PRO to collect your performance royalties, you got to sign up for the MLC to collect your mechanical royalties. But again, if you have a publishing company, they're going to do this for you. If you're an independent songwriter, sign up for the MLC. Head over to themlc.com to sign up. What's going on? Welcome to the New Music Business. I'm your host, Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, the book. Today, we are rerunning an episode. This is the first time we've ever done this. An episode that initially premiered last July with the artist manager, Jonathan Azu. This is in honor of Black History Month this month because Jonathan and I we had a really illuminating conversation about how to repair racial inequities in the music industry and the history of how our industry at the executive level is so white. Specifically in the Billboard Power 100, the top 50 people, there's only one black person in that in the executive level. And Jonathan has some ideas as to why and how we can 
help repair those disparities. Now, Jonathan is also a member of the Black Music Action Coalition, which I spoke about last week a little bit with Dina LaPolt. And Jonathan also recently launched the Diversity in Music. That's diversityinmusic.org and is the first ever employment talent directory for underrepresented women and minorities in music. So go on over to diversityinmusic.org, check out his new organization, and I hope you enjoy this podcast, which we recorded last June following the George Floyd protests and premiered this episode this past July. As always, please like, subscribe, find us wherever you are listening to this, and hit that subscribe button. Follow us however you're doing it. Just pause this episode, subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it'd be awesome if you left a five-star review. Those really help. If you're listening on YouTube, leave a review. Head on over to ariestake.com. Sign up for that email list. That's how you'll be informed by everything we do. And, of course, find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ari Herstan. You can find all of us at Ari's Take on Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok. So head on over and follow us all those places. All right. Let's kick into the show with Jonathan Azu. Azu, thank you for having me at your beautiful backyard, your house. This is the first episode that I've done in in person with somebody oh, okay. since quarantine started. I've been well, doing thanks. a lot of the Zoom, so this yeah. feels this feels nice to kind of be in the flash right yeah, now. Yeah, it's like in three D. Right, right, right. in three D. <laughs> is kind of it's kind of weird seeing people <laughs> below the waist. I'm pretty sure that everyone is just in their boxes when I'm talking to them. Actually, yeah. hologram. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Much safer right now. So we measured it. We we're six feet apart. Um, no, this is cool. Um, so, you know, it's we're in a really challenging, crazy, interesting time right now in the music industry. And I mean, with the quarantine, we don't know how long the live music industry is mm-hmm. going to be shut down. Um, I'm curious uh, just how you've been doing this whole time, how your artists are doing, how you're doing um, with all touring shut down indefinitely like what is your like day-to-day looking like these days yeah i mean you know like everybody we're, we're figuring it out by the day yeah right and i, yeah. and I think you know it's been interesting because i had artists in asia just as it was starting to, to break over there oh wow right okay um, cory henry was over there and emily king was scheduled to go over there mm-hmm. so we were watching this thing from a distance yeah i think we all were watching it or right. it wasn't that right. much of a surprise but yeah we were we were monitoring it and really it was just the there was just so much i call it misinformation but different perspectives yeah on yeah. what was happening right, right? and right. i'm much more pragmatic i'm much more you know you know, I, I had I have medical people in my family, so mm-hmm. I can like I was asking a lot of questions, and there were some people in our sandbox of the mm. artists that were like, you know, it's fake news, it's this, this that, right. right? So it was just like, who do you believe? And then ultimately, the artist is the person at, at risk, right? They're yeah. the ones that actually are going onto a stage, right. doing meet and greets, traveling in the airport, yeah. right? You know, so sometimes as team members, it's easy to look at that and be like, hey, it's all good, right. go do the show, right? And you know, but you get you're you're sleeping at home that night, and yeah. the artist is out there. Yeah. you know, carrying the weight. So, mm-hmm. but, um, but we, we were lucky enough as a company to get a lot done in the first three months of the year. Okay. We had a right. really good first three months with right. the group Grammy nominations. That's right. And we, 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 we developed a partnership with, with, with InGrooves and yeah. Universal Music Group to set up our own label system. Nice. We successfully put Luke James' album out. We yeah. toured that. He sold out all his dates. Emily sold out all her dates. We were yeah. going back for more. Yeah. Um, we were setting up tours for this year with Corey Henry was going to do an arena tour with Lenny Kravitz. Wow. Right? Okay. He's supposed yeah. to be in Europe doing arenas oh, right man. now. Ah, um, <laughs> that's uh, rough. 
you know, uh, Mich- Michelle Williams was was uh, was uh, gonna gonna be doing a tour as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, those both went away. So it's really been you know, for, for a good six thirty days. It was like, all right, this is happening. Yeah. What are we taking down? Yeah. Yeah. How are we taking those down? Yeah. Um, what are we trying to shift? Mm-hmm. And if we're shifting them, where are they shifting to? Yeah. Where do we want to plant? Or I talk about planting a flagpole, mm. and I I felt like we could maybe reschedule some stuff for November, December. Um, Looking unlikely right now. March. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think it looks challenging. Right. Without it being Swiss cheese of a tour. Right? Yeah. Right. I do right, think right. we will have potentially some markets that will be like, hey, we're good. We're doing mitigation, taking practices within our venues, but we're good to do shows. Yeah. Um, in some capacity, right? Yeah. But routing a tour, right? Difficult. Well, I mean, even right now, it's a state by state thing. Exactly. I mean, they just had that show. Chase Rice did a show outside of Nashville like two weeks ago with a thousand people in the venue, no social distancing, mm-hmm. no masks, mm-hmm. and it's like you know, I, I don't know many artists that would feel comfortable doing that. I sure wouldn't feel comfortable attending a show or doing that, and I would imagine most of your artists probably wouldn't feel comfortable in the immediate future doing shows like that it's interesting a lot of people talk about herd immunity right we've all right right yeah it's really we should also be talking about herd mentality yeah yeah because ultimately we can talk about what should happen at these shows Mm -hmm. to protect people Mm -hmm. from a public health standpoint yeah but the public has to decide they actually want to do those things right so even if they do open back up it's are people going to feel comfortable going? I mean, it's not even like if it's legally they can do it. Correct. It's who's going to feel comfortable? I mean, a lot of I've been talking to venue owners and they're thinking, you know, they're going to be at half capacity even when everything is back up and running. Even when there's a vaccine, it's just are people going to feel comfortable going mm-hmm. out to live music? I mean, uh, the concert industry is like probably going to be one of the hardest hit industries just across the board mm-hmm. because that's gathering a lot of people in a small space and so even when let's say that you know everyone is vaccinated people are still going to be a little bit skittish and who knows what venues are going to even be have survived this yeah so it's going to be it's going to be tough so we yeah you know we worked hard to sort through what was happening we worked hard to reshuffle things and yeah. plant p- flags in the ground of when we thought things would come back and then really start to get a digital mindset okay of how can we engage with our consumers yeah with our fans during this bridge period however long this bridge is to the other side but we have to engage with our fans and set up ways in which we can touch them and they can hear music and really feel part of what and and you know the the one silver line is we're all going through it yeah you know exactly we're all figuring it out i mean and that's the thing it's just like everyone is you know struggling through this moment and just figuring out what steps to take what were those conversations like like with like Corey, who's about to go on a big tour, arena tour with Lenny Kravitz, and he's such a live artist. Like, how is it with him not being able to perform? I mean, what what's an average year that Corey does in terms of number of dates? Like 150? No, it's like? 150, but it's a lot. Okay. Yeah. It's I mean, global. I mean, this year alone, yeah. Corey, in 2020, we would have, I can't remember what the, how many countries, but it yeah. was, you know, Korea, Japan, wow. Israel, all over Europe, yeah. um, you know, South America. And that's his, like his, his, largest revenue generator i would imagine it's because, outside the u.s and we do a lot yeah. of work in the u.s but outside the u.s so it's it's inter- it you know if i was to look f- at this yeah i think the international artists that yeah. have international presence and do international business yeah will have an opportunity to get things back on from a touring perspective before u.s artists right the u.s is not i mean let's just all be honest with right, you right we're not 
we're not handling this. We're not well. doing a good job right now. <laughs> no, we are we're the number one. Well yeah, yeah, at, no. at all. No. no, no indications. No. In the last two weeks, my my my, my mindset has shifted to, honestly, I think it's June June next year before wow. before U.S. will start to open back up for shows in any sort of way. Yeah, you yeah. know, I I just don't know how it happens before mm. then. Just knowing all the things that have to take place from a public health standpoint, right. For 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 you know venue owners, I think I'm not a venue owner, but yeah. to feel comfortable doing it, so we'll we'll see what what plays out, right? Yeah. Because even when a vaccine's found and therapeutics are found, yeah. there's a whole additional runway to getting those to marketplace, right? And then and then you know reality of it is that you know there will be a lot of people that um, you know uh, you you pulled in with the Tesla today, right. which, I, which I love, <laughs> right? You know, but there's a lot of people who are yeah. like, I'm not getting the version one of the Tesla, right? 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 right exactly. Version one of the Tesla. <laughs> that is absolutely true, and I can tell firsthand experience. It is, uh, you know, as an early adopter of this new technology, you're you're. You know, you're feeling it out. You're not quite 100 percent, 100 percent of the time. So which, yeah, version but, one yeah. of the vaccine. Yeah, version one of the vaccine. <laughs> Who's going to line up for that? Exactly. So, so who knows what's going to play yeah. out? But ultimately, I think internationally, we're seeing other countries. You know, it's, it, we we should, as an industry, yeah, look out outside the U.S. and learn what's happening outside the U.S. and think about how we apply that. Yeah, the government should be doing that from a public health standpoint. Right, and we should be doing it as an industry. How is Japan going back up? How is Korea going back up? Yeah. We have a, in this country, have a sense of, so oftentimes a sense of, of global arrogance mm-hmm. that we do things the best. Right. The, 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 the you know, the most accurate. Yeah. And this is going to be one of those situations where other countries are, are and not even, you know, is going to be, it's happening now. Right. That are leading. Mm-hmm. Um, to recovery faster and better than we are and right. we have to look to them so yeah. I, I i do think that you know possibly end of this year you know the possibility of sitting over in japan mm. you know for 14 days or seven days quarantining and then doing a residency of okay. shows yeah could be possible yeah you know yeah uh, we'll, we'll see you know sure yeah um outside of the live space what are your artists doing right now kind of at home is this a time to is like like writing this year or working on records or like what are they what are they doing it's a hybrid of things i mean yes we're you know if you're if you're you don't have a recording deal and you're you're working on one we're yeah. working to close that okay. we've, we've closed some publishing agreements with okay. some artists so artists are writing we've opened up recording budgets mm-hmm. for artists mm. so they're recording records so everyone's definitely in a creative space okay, uh, okay. zone working yeah. really hard um you know, uh, we have some artists that are, you know, Corey Henry's been doing every Sunday, and it's kind of happened organically, but over at Apogee Studios with, with Bob Clare Mountain, the legendary Bob yep, Clare Mountain, yeah. mixing a live session every Sunday. Oh, wow. You know, at uh, 3 o'clock, and it's broadcasted across all platforms. Oh, cool. And so we've been doing that with Corey. Nice. Um, we've been fulfilling some of our obligations that we had. You know, Emily Emily was scheduled to do TEDx, or TED, uh, the TED Talk in... Um, the TED conference in Vancouver, their annual event. Uh-huh. They did do it. They did it virtually. Huh. You know, so we've been executing sure. some things that we had committed to yeah. where we can. Yeah. Um, you know, talking a lot about when things come back on board. What, what are we? How are we positioning ourselves? Looking yeah. at product. Okay. You like know, merch going, going into the fourth quarter. Yeah. Stores. Yeah. You know, yeah. Instead of just having selling merch on our website, or right. we becoming actually a merch store like thinking oh, okay. about it like seasonal like yeah we are dropping the 
winter line of sure, this like or that. Sure, like a fashion brand. Like, exactly. That kind of thing. Thinking, okay, thinking cool. how do we engage with our fans in different ways and yeah. more interesting ways. Because I do believe the artists that do that, mm-hmm. the artists that put content out, that really figure this thing out on how to engage with fans, those fans will, of course, be the first ones to buy tickets when it, when it comes back on board. Right, to, stay, to keep that engagement up mm-hmm. throughout this whole time period. Yeah. I mean, instead of just disappearing um, and going into hibernation or something like that. So that's nice. I mean, you know, I, I think about it's almost like it's uh, in some twisted way, it's like a blessing that this is happening now versus 10, 15, 20 years ago where we didn't have the internet or social media or ways to kind of, you know, digitize our business in any form. And so now we're forced to get much more creative with our business to just keep a business rolling in some respect. But at the same time, even with just fan engagement, there's all these tools that we have now that, that people can You're do that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Dealing with this now versus dealing with this in 1990 right. would, would be far more difficult. Right. right. Just, right. just even things such, such as, fulfilling a, a merch item right? yeah right you know? ordering the merch item, ordering right. the merch item right <laughs> you know yeah. imagine if we were all just purely dependent upon mm-hmm. you know you can only buy merchandise by going to a show you can't do it online right you know um because the the bar of entry of selling online is too high it's too mm-hmm. expensive there's too many hurdles to go over so we are yeah. positioned as a society to win yeah here yeah. to continue to win or yep. figure it out mm-hmm. right um, but you know, it makes it, it still makes it challenging. Have any of your artists been doing experimenting with live streaming or live stream shows or anything like that? Well, we've we, so you know, Corey's doing the weekly. We're not charging the for Clear Mountain thing. Yeah, yeah. We're, it's we're broadcasting it out. We have a tip jar type thing because some sure. people said they wanted to contribute, which cool. is great. Yeah. Um, you know, my my attitude on that it makes sense. And I always I think last time we talked, I, th- I talked about regular season and Super Bowls. Yeah. Like an analogy yep. that I use that you want to have Super Bowl moments in your career, but you want a lot of regular season stuff. And I think that applies towards webcasting that you should be putting content out and distributing across platforms and you should be allowing your fans to access it any way in which way they can mm-hmm. um, and, and, and then you should create some Super Bowl moments where you're like hey this is a paid experience here's what the experience is going to be we're mm. covering an album or we're going to be collaborating with another artist or we're going to be bringing the full band back together to do the set. And yes, there's going to be a, a transaction for you to have access to this content. So these are like previews, like these free little glimpses of kind of the live stream. And then the Super Bowl moment is is the full concert that's ticketed, that kind of a thing? Type thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You, I think if you ticket everything, yeah. you're limiting the fan that just wants to engage. Mm, sure. So so that's that makes sense. It's, it's kind of the... These are the engagement tools that you're using in this new creative way that that kind of feeds them. Mm-hmm. But then when you do put up that high ticket item, they've felt taken care of this entire time that yeah. they're willing to, to jump in with that. Exactly. So do you have the high ticket items, those those big Super Bowl moments in the live streaming realm that you're kind of you've we're been working, doing, on working on it? it? Okay, yeah, we're cool. for, 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 and I also strategically thought that what you would see in this this kind of bell curve is you would see a few people doing streams in the very in March, March right. April and this hit yes. you're going to see a ton where people are just going to be like I don't even know like I remember going to Instagram about a five six Everyone weeks ago live. and it was like all lives <laughs> right. it was insane Everyone it's like what do you do with this yeah, right exactly. and then you'll hit the other end of the bell curve where that will go away and then it'll yep. be you know premium content mm. I think that that's, that's how that works technology is catching up to that right mm-hmm. now too is like I think when this hit there really weren't that many live streaming options that were ticketed that where the technology met the moment I mean one of the very 
the only real live like ticketed live streaming platforms that existed was stage it which came out 10 years ago and it was still using the flash technology and it just like was not really the a, a real a solution that kind of met the expectations of 2020 but now i've started to see a lot more live streaming platforms that are kind of meeting the moment that really went into overdrive to try to you know um just just be that platform for the to meet the needs of all the the artists out there that yeah. want to do this so, yeah exactly yeah so i uh, will see um so I want to back up a little bit um, and talk about Culture Collective. Um, so you had been at, uh, I mean, Red Light Management for how many years? <laughs> many, I, years. <laughs> many years. Many years. You're in Red New Light. York. I was in New York. So I, I so my, my, my career path was I, um, I, I spent a bunch, a few years at CBS Radio corporately in New York. Okay. Working on John Sykes' team, I was I was that's when I initially joined. I was I just essentially I just graduated from college. Okay, right? so was, okay. Um, um, and I worked for CBS uh, Radio. John Sykes was running it, mm. and um, he hired a lot of his former MTV Networks friends to come through and help run radio. Okay, so it was Andy Schoen, Greg Drebin, um, David Goodman, who's you know actually who initially hired me mm. out of St. Louis where mm. I was living with my parents to come to New York. So I, I credit David Goodman a lot with, cool. you know, getting me where I'm at. Yeah. And, um, and I was there handling music partnerships. So I was the liaison between the label community and our 80 program directors of radio stations across the U S. So okay. I, I, and we were developing programs mm. that were being promoted through our radio stations, but they were music programs. Okay. They, were, we were, they were sold to advertisers. Okay. So I built all these relationships with program directors and I built all these relationships with label executives. Yeah. And this was in the 2000s and you know, managers were, were always very important in the sandbox of the artists, but right. ultimately then the labels were much more in the driver's seat. Yep. And I left CBS and I went into live events. Um, I joined Superfly. Okay. Uh, presents, yeah. cool. you know, there, there was, I mean, there was probably only 10 of us working there at the time. Yeah. And it's more like a startup office <laughs> in, in, on West third and LaGuardia place, All right. you All know, right. near NYU. Yeah. And, um, at that time it was just Bonnaroo and we, right. we, we went on to create other festivals outside lands. Cool. Yeah. Um, Guga Muga, which was a food experience in, in Prospect Park. We yeah. partnered with the Life is Good company. Oh yeah. And partnered and we did the Life is Good uh, uh, family festival, sure. which was really cool because it was for all ages. Where was that? That was in Boston, okay. which is where Life is Good started. Cool. And uh, we developed the marketing group, mm. which is huge business for them today. Mm -hmm. So it was all about how do we leverage the relationships we have with advertisers that are coming to life at our festivals. Yeah. If we, if we can sell solutions to them around the Super Bowl, we can figure out how to sell solutions in the regular season to them. So yeah. it was, hey, State Farm, it's great that you're sponsoring Bonnaroo, right. but let's talk about how we can create other cool things for you as an agency. So we, nice. we started the agency and had amazing years there. Yeah. Still very close with everybody at Superfly. Cool. Um, Corin Capshaw, who is is uh, um, founder of, of Red, Red Light, Light. Yeah. Um, uh, is also an, was an investor in some of the assets that Superfly co -owned. Oh, that's right. And uh, isn't Red Light a co-owner in Bonnaroo? Well, Corin was, was. was an investor in, 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 in Bonnaroo. Got it. And he also does a lot of investments, you know, okay, sure. and, um, it's Superfly and Corin co-owned assets together. Gotcha. Okay. Right? Yeah. And so I got to know Corin really well around that relationship. And, um, 
and more interesting was that when I was in college, I booked Dave Matthews. You know, so it was kind of like a full oh, right circle on. moment. To like, get, where did you, know, you go to school? Drake University. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, and so it was. It was in, in Iowa. In I in in, in in Des Moines. Yeah, where the uh, Iowa caucuses are held. Oh uh, yeah, I played Drake University. It was probably not the level that Dave Matthews was playing <laughs> Drake. I was at a little. Uh, uh, I played your. It was in the student union. It was one of those levels, like the singer songwriter that they would bring in for you know, like a coffee house series or whatever. Yeah, that's but, how yeah. I got started. I, that's when I was in college. I was I was the guy that. Oh, you, know, you were bringing the music. Bringing cool. The music. Oh, bringing so you the know, music. Right. Right. So um. <laughs> You know, Corn was looking for a general manager to come over to Red Light, and at that time, it, I think it was around 100 artists and um, and um, a handful of offices. So I left Superfly and became GM of, of Red Light, and was at Red Light for a bunch of years. And while I was there, I had signed some artists, and but you know, really was there primarily as general manager. And I was kind gotcha. of like, I was, I was, I was kind of an advocate, if you will, for mm-hmm. the managers while yeah. I was there. You know, and really working with them and how helping to provide them with tools and resources and relationships and networking to help them in their everyday management of their artists. And this was the New York office? I was operating out of the New York office, but okay. I was GM of the company. Gotcha. So at that time, there was New York, LA, Charlottesville, Charlottesville was the Seattle? first office. Or no, that at that time, when I, when I, when I joined, it was, it was Charlottesville, which was the first office, yep. New York, which was the second office. Mm-hmm. Then there was LA, yeah, um, and then Nashville. So I was right. I was there when there was four. Okay, I think today it's it's Seattle, in London. Yeah, is on that. We we rolled London in when I was there. Gotcha. Right. Cool. So um, so that was like mid two thousands or something. I, late I went two, over, or? yeah late two thousands. Cool. Um, when I went over to to I'm trying to think. It's like time. Right. Um. Um. Actually, it was both, it was, it was actually. Yeah, late late two thousand, early yeah. two thousand ten, or something cool. like that, right? And then, um, so so yeah, went went over to Red Light, you know, uh, signing some artists, but also there as as GM was in working out of New York in the same building that ATO Records is housed out of. So I sure. built a really great relationship with the team at ATO. Yeah. You know, we did a lot of amazing things. I mean, it was really neat. I mean, probably one of the more memorable things working out of that office was the Alabama Shakes and the fact that management and labor were in the same building. And I was there when they essentially had signed them and to watch Mm. the growth of that that band. Yeah. It was just really neat to watch amongst a lot of other things. But that was a really really fun one. And it still brings back good memories when I'm playing their albums at home thinking – you know, some of the small, tiny shows they were doing back then at Mercury wow. Lounge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh, for sure. <laughs> right. And then, uh, right, I caught their Greek show. I, fa- I want to say it was like probably 2016 or something. It was like right when they were, uh, I think that was the year they were nominated for everything at the Grammys. Mm-hmm. and yeah. Or maybe it was like right before that or something like that. But, yeah, they're uh yeah that was i mean that's great it's like that's a true kind of red light ato um collaboration mm-hmm. one of the ones that really popped really popped great. yeah, yeah. And then you throw in the bonnaroo and the festivals it right. all really ecosystem of red light really mm. you saw it come together with that particular artist yeah right? yeah um and you know i i decided to move to la um, with my family uh, for personal reasons, but also, you know, I, I started seeing a lot of stuff shifting this way sure. out west, and so we, we we made the jump out here. I took a step out of the G, the general manager role yep. and started working with Red Light just around my clients mm-hmm. and started thinking around, you know, just having a lot of self reflection, you know, mm-hmm. about my career and people I had met with and people that had been influential into where I'd gotten in my life and um, the fact that I was often the only person of color that was in a lot of these meetings mm. in my career. Um, I was the only person of color at a lot of these, these high level, you know, curated 
events where they're bringing in the president and CEO of this label and this and that. And you're sitting there and you're saying what once used to be, I guess that's the way it is because I'm just living in it, right. was I think I understand why it is. Mm. And now the question is, do I want to be an example of somebody that breaks that cycle and yeah. says, you know, you can be an owner of your own business and mm. be of color. You can, you can um, develop ways in which your company is structured to help break systemic issues that are out there that help that that really prevent uh, diversity and inclusion from happening in our industry. Mm. Not always intentional. Sure. Right. Right. You know, and I think that's the one shift that we're seeing now versus before this year was that, you know, not in a million years would I ever think that a lot of people I worked with would ever think that diversity and inclusion is not a good idea or they wouldn't believe in the Black Lives Matter movement. But what were they actively doing to themselves to help provide a better, you know, a better, uh, you know, structure to prevent these things from happening? Right. And they also manifest themselves in different ways. Sure. The George Floyd killing was an acute manifestation of systematic racism that led in death and it was very shocking for everyone to see but right. you know the manifestation of systematic racism comes to life in many many other ways yeah. in society and also many many other ways within our industry and many many other ways within these companies in our industry that has pledged to get behind the movement mm-hmm. have to look within so i wanted to be a company this was a year ago march right. that really embodied these these um values into our mission statement mm-hmm. and we launched and that was part of our part of my you know my story of when i launched i was very right. public about it yep. and i wanted to walk in it i yep. wanted it to be me and my vision and it's been interesting that literally a year late later almost to the date of launching um covid hits and then a few months later the george floyd killing happens and mm-hmm. then you know you, you know then from there and it's been interesting because it's just i've been talking a lot about it you know you know um not just publicly on platforms but i've gotten calls from colleagues yeah you know um at red light cbs superfly saying you know let me check in i want to check in on myself as an individual yeah so how can i do better Mm. because i know somebody from white colleagues correct who are somebody i worked with that i respect i look up to and i know why you left red light i know why you started culture collective and i know what you're what you're trying to do yeah what can i do as an individual to be better and be more self-aware and and so it's been it's been cathartic for me because i like to talk a lot about it you know because i think if we can have these conversations even if they feel uncomfortable it, it, it pushes you towards progress. So what are some of the suggestions? So when these white colleagues call you and they're asking for guidance or they're asking for to check in or just to see how you're doing, but also how can we be better as an industry? Um, what are some of your thoughts on that? And what do you kind of uh, talk to these colleagues about? I think, you know, ultimately, I mean, it's a, it's a variety of things, but right. the, the first and foremost is rec- recognition. Sure. Saying, all right. You know, I, the, I, I, re- I now recognize and whatever that epiphany was, I yeah. now recognize that I need to do more mm. as an individual in in the self, this being self-aware, of the shoes that you walk in as 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 someone, not someone of color sure. versus somebody that is. Yeah. And um, that's the first step, mm-hmm. ultimately. And the second step is is recognizing that. You know, like it or not. Right. Um, you know, you're part of the problem. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and it's not always 
with intention part of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's sometimes not with intentions. It can be something as little as, as you know, hearing something and not saying something about it. Right. We're seeing that a lot. That's why social media is exploding. Yes. Because people of all races are saying, I'm not going to stand for what you just said to that patron over there. Right. And, 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 and versus that's not my fight. Right. And I mean, it's, it's, that's part of the privilege that white people have where we don't have to acknowledge it and we can kind of operate in our own little bubble and, and just pretend that there isn't a problem because it doesn't directly, um, inhibit our upward mobility or, um, you know, in a sense that's obvious or, or it's just, it's, it's not a problem that white people have to acknowledge on a daily basis. And so we can pretend it doesn't exist. Correct. And so I think that, you know, that's been something that I have been, you know, focusing on the last few months is just trying to see how can I, um, start with the acknowledgement start with acknowledging white privilege start acknowledging all of the privileges that i have as a white male in the industry and just in society but then looking at like where like where's the best place to like what is the best role for someone for any of us and any of the um to kind of have in this in this place how do we effectively move not just the conversation forward, mm-hmm. but move the industry forward in a more equitable place? Mm-hmm. And like, I think we're all trying to figure that out right now. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I think that that our industry is 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 um, you know, there's there's a term progressive white privilege that I that I was was brought to my attention relatively recent, right? Because I've always thought of it as white privilege. And, yeah, and progressive white privilege is that is that individual that. Again, I, and I think it's a lot in our industry that would never ever think that DNI is not a good idea. Would never ever think that the killing of George Floyd was justified. Mm-hmm. Um, would never, you know, you know, supports Black Lives Matter, puts the sign up in the window, right? Uh, 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 post in solidarity, right? On, on Blackout Tuesday, right, right, right. Um, you know, encourage their company to take Juneteenth off, sure, right? Um, but would would never say that that they're part of the issue mm. uh, because they are in support of or don't believe in those things, right? But there's a whole host of other things right. that they may say, well, but yeah, you know, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hire uh, a director uh, underneath me mm-hmm. and, you know, nobody of color applied. So, you know, I just kind of went with right. the person that I felt comfortable with. Right, right. right. And so, yes. So yes. it's this kind of like mm. progressive of like, I'm progressive enough to know that those things that I mentioned before yeah. are not right mm. or or need to be fixed because they're, they're very willing- acute and they're very public facing. Yes, yes, right? yes. Kenning the Kenning Karen stuff, <laughs> right. social media, right? Yeah, yeah. But when it when you, when, you, when you start to unpack some of the other things, mm-hmm. they're not as willing to say that that's an issue. So you're leading by example. You're running your own company. Um, you know, it's you, you have a. Um, um, I think it's an all black roster. Um, and it's, how do you, like, how would someone else in like, uh, uh, your white colleagues that are in those positions of power kind of actually do the work and not just pay lip service to the movement? You know, I'll give an, one that really stuck with me when I was starting my company Yeah, was, um, was that I think the companies I've worked for and other companies in the industry have always done a really great job of hiring interns. Okay. 
to, that eventually become whatever assistant, right. yes, office coordinator, and then become manager or director. Or, right? There's a pipeline there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, I've always noticed that the diversification in the internship pool is always like, you know, wasn't well, great. Right. You'd look at it and say, well, what's the deal here? Mm-hmm. And I started really unpacking the fact that we don't hire our interns. Yeah. I'm sorry. We don't pay our interns. Ah. Right. And if I'm, you know, economically challenged that I can't over the summer pay, mm. pay to fly someplace, New York or L.A. Right. Put myself up and work for free. Yeah. I can't. That's not an option, mm. right? And the reality of it is that the overwhelming majority of those that are economically challenged are people of color. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So now that internship program is now going to go to most likely somebody not of color that's mm. affluent, that right. can afford to do it. Right, right. There's your pipeline right there. Mm. And then you ask yourself, well, you know, we hire within or we hire which, 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 who's we, within arm's reach. Right. And they tend to tends not be diversified yeah yeah that's i mean that's a great i mean real life example and that makes a lot of sense um and you're part of the uh, so there's this uh organization that has started the black music coalition Mm -hmm. um and it's it's black artist managers that have kind of come together what what is this yeah so it was it was developed by by binta brown uh who's an uh, attorney with with a political background but also Uh works with uh with artists okay um had put it together and basically there was a zoom call at some point in time with a bunch of managers and we were discussing what 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 can we do and and there's multiple missions their charges that the organization has. Okay. But one of the primary ones is holding these companies accountable. Mm. You know? So we all watched a lot of companies post on social media. You know, they cut a lot of checks. Right. A lot of right. checks, a lot of checks flying around. Yes. Right. <laughs> okay. And then now it's what, what, where's the accountability? Sure. Because if, if, if these companies would have held themselves accountable, we wouldn't be where we're at. Mm. Yes. And since they're private, you can't self police. You can't self police, right? Right. And if you, I'm just making this up, but if company A says, "Hey, we're going to diversify our C level executives," so going forward, our goal is to, you know, make sure that within three years, twenty percent of our executive, you know, C level executives are people of color, mm-hmm. and they only get to ten percent. Mm. What happens? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So we're we're working to develop ways in which we can hold those companies accountable. Okay to the best of our capabilities. And and hopefully also too, sometimes it's not just us coming in and saying, hey, you know, show us what you're doing. Yeah. It could be, uh, here's who you should be working with mm. to help you get there as a company. I do believe that the bigger the institution, yeah. well, all institutions, but definitely these big institutions, they need to be do- hiring outside, bringing consultants in mm. to help really look at what they're doing, unpack that, restructure it, create safe environments for employees to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and um, and then really have that self self evaluation, you know. And then I also really think this episode is brought to you by the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective. Don't tune out. This is really important. If you're a songwriter based in the United States, you need to listen to this. If you've never heard of the MLC, well, it's time that you've heard of them. This is the organization that was set up by the Music Modernization Act, but in 2018, all of this nonsense, you don't actually need to know. That's not important. What is important is that if you are a songwriter and you do not have a publishing company, 
you are not collecting all of your songwriter royalties, specifically your mechanical royalties. There are two kinds of songwriter royalties when your songs are streamed on Spotify, Apple Music, and the rest. Those are performance royalties, which are collected by your performing rights organization, like an ASCAP or a BMI. And there are mechanical royalties. These royalties are now, by law, only collected by the MLC. So if you're not a member of the MLC, you're not getting these royalties unless you have a publisher. If you don't have a publishing company or an independent songwriter, you need to sign up for the MLC to get your mechanical royalties. And you need to sign up for, of course, a performing arts organization to get your performance royalties. So head on over to themlc.com and sign on up. Thank me later. Compensation be t- should be tied to this in, in some way? form or fashion. I have trouble really... If you're 65 years old and you're a chairman or chairperson of a company, yep. right, and you're saying in the last three months, I really think that diversity and inclusion is something that we need to take seriously at my company, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm going to cut checks and we should do this. Mm-hmm. I really feel that in order for you really to care, your compensation should be tied to the metrics that you lay out mm. for your company to get to the diversity and inclusion benchmarks. Yeah. Right? So your bonus, your your salary however you want to look at it. Okay, yeah, Compensation sure. Compensation at that level right. should be a part of that accountability, and you'll start to see some change. It needs to be felt emotionally. <laughs> Don't right. get me wrong. Sure, you sure. got to buy in. Yeah. you got to want to do it. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's all about the money, but ultimately, too, a lot of these companies should be, compensation should be a part of that, right? Yeah. Um, and then I think what's, and I also think what's happening, and I, and I tend to think that's maybe for the older executive that came through this industry with a lot of systemic issues and now is on the sunset mm. and you're trying to think why is that executive on the sunset just now having an epiphany right is the change really going to happen i do think there's a groundswell mm-hmm. of younger executives coming into this industry that do want to make sure that it, it, it not only do they want to make sure that the companies that they work for mm-hmm. are doing these things mm-hmm. they won't work at companies that don't do these things and and is there a way to make this accountability public is there like a database that could be publicly listed saying here are the companies like i was looking at the billboard top 100 power players mm-hmm. the top 10 are all white um the top 50 i fe- i think there was only one or two black people john and, platt and the, right right and there's like four <laughs> and four uh, people the other person yeah but yeah, yeah but that's that and, it's, it. and, and by the way it's something so i've go to billboard power 100 Every year, yeah, and it, it it's talked about in that room, yeah. With when I run into the other black executives in that room, yeah, we talk about it, yeah. I don't know if the, all the other white executives realize we're talking about it, right? right. We talk about <laughs> it. This is true, yeah. right? You right. know, it's yeah. really true, and it's not that hey, Billboard, go go pick executives of color so you can have better representation on your list. Yeah, it goes deeper than that. Mm-hmm. What's going on at these companies to where right. these where where people aren't put into the position to have a shot at being on that list right i mean it's like you can't just say oh we're going to exclude universal because it's run by a a white guy it's like well no universal is still one of the most powerful music companies and the person who runs that is going to make the billboard Mm -hmm. power list and so it's like and same with all the other companies and so it's just like when you're looking at who's running those companies and so that's more hurtful what's more hurtful to the movement is somebody saying the the solution is Let's just, just not put Lucian in there. Let's just put somebody else in there because right. they're of color, and we solved it, right? Yes. You've got to unpack, and the unpacking of it is, well, why 
Is it that there's only these, to your point, white executives yeah. that are at the very tops of these companies? You know, you know, on down to, hey, our internship program's not right. Right, because you don't want to just put a Band-Aid on this bullet wound. Exactly. And by That's- just replacing it, it's like, all right, Lucian, sorry, you're gone. We're putting in uh, some black person just mm-hmm. so we can, like, check this off. Mm-hmm. And then the system- systemic issues are still maintained throughout the yeah. entire yeah. ecosystem of the company. We saw that with busing. In, in schools, mm. right? I went to a school that was 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 desegregated by busing, and and you know it, from a statistical standpoint, it it you can look at it on a paper and be like, oh, we solved. We now have six percent of the school population right. here is of color, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we bus students in. But when you really were in the lunchroom, yeah, it wasn't working. So I'm curious if you think that there could be a way. I mean, internship programs that's something i hadn't thought of and that's like a really illuminating um and and concrete change that people can make is shifting the internship programs to be paid internships and then also recruiting um outside of your normal recruitment tactics i'm wondering if it can start in other areas um like in communities um like at, at universities or even in at the high school level, um, kind of encouraging um, or just educating in a way that, that there can be kind of a mentorship program in some way. Um, ha, is any of that like explored or, or is that something that, that would possi- be possible? Not explored enough. Yeah. I mean, there should be mentorship programs. There should be when you're, you're you know, through these internships, recognizing who are the, the standouts and who are the ones that, we should be carrying to future semesters, mm-hmm. um, summer semesters, or semesters of internships, yeah. and then eventually graduating and having two or three mentors through internship programs that right. now can help place you in the industry. Mm, yeah, yeah, the pipeline. We have to actively right. walk in our practice of breaking systemic issues. Right. You have to really think how is it going to be done and what are the systems that we're going to set up. And again, mm. cutting checks is fine. But if you're not thinking, how do I invest, take that money and mm-hmm. invest in what we do as an organization, you're missing the mark. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm I'm curious about, you know, there's been a lot of talk about reparations um, in society. I mean, I, I read um, Tanahasi Coates, uh, The Case for Reparations uh, from The Atlantic that he wrote, uh, gosh, it must have been maybe five, six years ago, something like that. That's more about uh, reparations for the entire society, America. I'm wondering if there's a way that that could work within the music industry in terms of just like, it's almost like a reinvestment. It's like, you know, I, I I was, um, I don't remember what this was from, but like I was learning about, you know, after, um, world war two, after the Holocaust, Germany paid reparations to Israel, um, to the Jews and was part of the way because they're like, because they pulled, um, it, they felt morally that this was the right move to make to invest in a community that they not just disenfranchised but actually completely oppressed and they paid reparations to Jews in Israel and that was part of the reason that Israel thrived so rapidly. I'm wondering if there's a way that reparations, if you think it, there's any place for that, if that should be looked at in music at all and what that he would even look like. It's interesting because 
your you know your example is a societal right, right. versus industry right which is when, within the industry you have you know we're in America so we're built on capitalism right and um and uh and this country was built you know was built on racism it just right. was right. flat out right yes. um starting with the native americans so i almost feel like i think it could work but we it it, it should start it it should Holistically, it would have to start at a societal level, okay. and then trickle down into industry huh. to have wide, wide impact. Yeah. But that being said, yeah, I mean, I it, how interesting would it be if record label Acme Co. Whatever mm-hmm. you know, Acme Co. Right, whatever record yeah, label yeah, yeah. stood up and said, "Listen, the agreements that we cut with artists in the." 50s, 60s, 70s, and in some cases, the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. were not fair. Right. And we are publicly going to say that they were not fair. Mm-hmm. And even we're publicly going to say the estates of this artist or that artist, your your deals were not fair, mm-hmm. and we're going to restructure those. Hmm. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. And it would be, it would be a step in the right direction, but it yes. would also be an example mm-hmm. Of a company saying, recognizing what I talked about earlier, yep. recognizing that they were a part of the problem. Yes, right. It's that acknowledgement, and that's right? what's instead. Needed, yes. Instead, a lot of companies would rather say, "Well, let's not talk about the past. Let's talk about the solutions that we put in place." We we now take Juneteenth off. We cut a million dollars to color and change. <laughs> right. You know, we posted in solidarity. Right. We're not part of the problem. Yeah. Progressive privilege. Right. Right. And that's because it it has to affect the bottom line in the business. And that's that's where the uncomfortable conversations need to happen and where there's going to be the most amount of pushback um, is when you're saying, well, we're going to pull from all of your revenue, from your salaries and from your bottom line and right the wrongs of the past of what we have done as an industry um on and and you start with i I like that looking at the the deals um with individual artists but then even i mean because it's it's the reinvestment and that was kind of you you were mentioning before um that's what we you know when in society we're exploring that that's what the defund the police movement is all about is taking money from over here where we're overfunding police right now and investing that into community specifically communities of color to build up the community so the policing is not as needed because we have social programs that are now supporting so it's the community supporting itself but we're taking the money that traditionally has gone into policing those communities and then helping build it up it's like a different it's that it's that reinvestment reallocation Reallocation, exactly i'm i'm trying to see if there's like some kind of parallel that could work in the music industry um similar to how we're thinking about that because it's like you know it's it's like it's not just enough you're cutting every executive salary and like putting that to the artist's baseline or like let's give them a few more points on their (laughs) record deal or whatever but yeah i I don't know and and i'm just like because i think everyone well uh, most people acknowledge that there's a systemic issue and there has been from that pipeline from the internship program all the way up to the executive level and all you need to do is look at the billboard power list to see there's a problem here and but even in every boardroom like you mentioned it's it's very obvious but then when music 
when the charts are dominated by black artists and it's um you know it's like black culture is dominating just american pop culture there's such a imbalance there and like i'm i yeah i'm i'm just like i, I it's it's like i'm at a loss to kind of see what are what are the steps that like on an individual level because if you're looking at a like systemic level it's like okay there's only how many of the executives can like make those executive decisions saying all right we're changing this we're doing this this and this but like is there something that individuals in the music industry can do specifically with white individuals that would just i don't know in your opinion that that would help the movement yeah i think i mean you know helping mobilize right you know okay. um communication is key but like i was saying before it's like you know if you're working at a company that's you know embracing these kind of practices and not being self-reflective mm. and being progressively privileged about it, um, high-fiving because you posted on social media, you right. cut a check, tell me you don't rock with them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's no better time than right now. That's the other thing that's interesting right now with that this intersection that we hit of COVID and the conversation around race. It came at a time where, you know, you, you could probably be more vocal than you've ever felt before. Yeah where you work, especially in our industry, yeah. what are they going to do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hire you? Right, right. You're right? Yeah. Uh, what are they, what are they going to do? Uh, you know, everyone's vulnerable. Yeah. So it's like the perfect time, you know? Mm. We're all not touring. Yeah. We're mostly home. Yeah. We're working from home. We're having these conversations. Um, you know, I've, and I, listen, I think companies are scared to a certain extent. I think yeah. that's why you saw so you saw so much activity with posting and cutting checks because yep. nobody wanted to get called out. Right. But I think that's dangerous. Like I said before, that's the equivalent of putting the Black Lives Matter poster in your window and then going and voting how you vote or hiring how you hire that next day. Mm. You know, that that's a very facade thing. Right. And um, But if you work at these companies or you're an executive at these companies or you're an officer at the companies, you got to stand up and say, listen, this this is not how it should be. And this yeah. is the perfect time to do it. Yeah. We have a runway between when we're actually going to be all busy again where it says, you know what, I really think this is important, but we have this immediate short-term need of a tour going up or, you know, like we have a runway right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's it's – I feel like it's it's really yeah, like you said. I mean, it is the perfect time to be having these conversations, and and um, I, I think that was the biggest challenge before is like even if people felt like there was injustice in their company, the lower um, the, the totem pole you are, the more the less empowered you felt to speak out because it's like then you're deemed difficult or you're challenging the status quo and you don't really have that power to do that. And now uh, people are feeling more empowered. And um, so, yeah, I mean, hopefully we're going to start to see it's it's obviously going to be incremental. But, um, you know, some companies are coming out like, uh, you know, the distributor STEM, the independent distributor. Uh, Milana Rabkin, she's the CEO, and, and she, they were one of the very few companies that not just made a, a blackout Tuesday uh, show must be paused post, but actually took a couple weeks and looked into the entire structure of their company and said, you know, we failed. We failed at the executive level. We failed in our hiring practices and they 
put out like a step-by-step plan of how they were going to uh, be more inclusive and active in their hiring practices and just like mm-hmm. focusing on that. And, and, you know, it was nice to see that they're willing to take those concrete steps and not just kind of move on businesses as usual, you know, a few weeks after the noise has kind of died down. Yeah. And I wasn't aware of that. And I applaud her for, for taking that action. Cause I always say that these things are much easier to talk about, um, now than when there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Uh, and in crisis have come to life now when you get called out or somebody says, you know, uh, it was, there was a Los Angeles time article, uh, about a week ago. I don't know if you saw it. I, I, and I can't remember the, the company that this woman worked at, mm-hmm. but the title of the article was, um, entertainment company, uh, uh, says they, they believe in the black lives matter movement, uh-huh. former employee thinks different, right? right <laughs> former right. black employee that. thinks right. different. <laughs> I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So exactly. when it becomes a crisis, yeah. because somebody says, ah, 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 yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to publicly talk about the things that you were doing as a company. Right. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, oh, let's rush and get something out. We're going to fix this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Be proactive about mm. it. Yes. And not just wait to get right called out. Don't wait till it's a crisis. Yeah. It's much more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm concerned similarly that like as we've all been seeing, you know, right when the protests started after George Floyd, um, everyone's very active. There's a hundred thousand people on Hollywood Boulevard protesting. And, you know, I, you attend the protest and it gets fewer and fewer people. People are talking about it less and less on social media. And then it's going to kind of get into kind of business as usual again. Um, are you noticing kind of people losing interest? And if so, I mean, even with the Black Music Coalition, is this something that is going to kind of keep those companies held accountable in a way that's ongoing and to have the regular check-ins? And I'm uh, yeah, hopefully you get to a, one day where it's not needed, right? You know, and that you know that's being been worked on for decades, right? Multiple civil rights leaders, and you get better and better, right? Yeah, we we, we do have progress in society, so something's happening at a societal level. Yeah. Um, and yes, distractions exist. Yeah. You know, be it the COVID, uh, you know, resurge or be it Kanye 2020 <laughs> distractions, <laughs> distractions will be out there. Right. So you have to stay focused yeah. and keep pushing it into the forefront and making sure it's at the top of conversation. Mm-hmm. And only time will tell this time next year when we're all kind of hopefully comfortably getting starting to, to get back into a normalcy around industry things, mm-hmm. whether or not we're pushing it forward mm. and addressing it. I do believe that I, I do believe and I, and I, and I hope that executives at all different levels feel that they can bring it up and talk about it mm-hmm. without risking their, you know, their jobs, yep. you know, real talk, right. Yep. Um, you know, risking, confrontation yeah they can bring these things up and they can be talked about yeah um once things come back on board and i and i, and I feel that's going to happen i really really do i feel that's mm-hmm. going to happen yeah i hope so and i, I think it's it's you know we want to look at this as not just a moment um but actually a way that can be um integrated into uh the the just the fabric of every yeah, day absolutely right, right. Mm-hmm. and and 
that's yeah and i think a lot of us like um white allies have been kind of just trying to figure out how do we help like amplify the the black leaders and their voices and just try to be like supporters of this movement and like integrate this into our daily lives and you know just help keep this keep the momentum going so it doesn't just die out because i mean i fully acknowledge that it's it's very easy for me to just kind of pretend this doesn't exist because i'm not forced with acknowledging on a daily basis but now it's you know now that like the wool has been pulled over you know away from my eyes i'm like like, oh now i don't feel comfortable not acknowledging it on a regular basis and like i'm just trying to find ways to just like help you know move this movement forward effectively yeah and then on my end as a person of color yeah it's 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 um not pretending that that didn't hurt what somebody said right right it's not it's it's, Mm. it's 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 not you know pretending that that didn't that didn't make me fearful yeah what somebody said or mm. did right yeah and that's the part that we in our in our in our society but in our industry need to push forward on exactly what you just said exactly what i said we have to get comfortable with that yeah and i and i i when i look back at my career and i look at things that times that i felt hurt or uncomfortable because somebody said something or did something yeah and i didn't say anything about it i you know i do look at myself as much as I look at them, that what could have been done better in that situation. Mm, yeah, sure. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, this is like a, the reckoning that I think society needed to have, but also our industry has needed to have for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, um, that's great. And I, and I appreciate kind of, you know, being able to have these, this conversation because it's, it's something that like, I think for so long people weren't having uh, white people weren't having like, uh, you know, like you were saying when you're in the room with the billboard power 100 and it's like, it's just a few black people. And it's like, you're having those conversations, but none of the white people um, are having them. So you do have an all black roster. Now, was that intentional when you're kind of signing artists? Was that part of the culture collective um, mission statement to amplify artists of color um, or is this something that is kind of um, just in your personal taste or, or how that all works? I, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely part of the mission statement of the company, but okay. the reality is I was, before I started Culture Collective, I had worked primarily, what? you know, with black artists that were that fell under my responsibility at Red Light. Of course, I worked with everybody, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, the mission statement of the company is to embrace those that are, that are, that are, you know, it, you know, using music as a channel to express their culture. Mm, and, okay. And, and, yeah, and, cool. And, um, you know, I, th- I think it's important and I've always thought it was important that artists of color have the opportunity to sit across the table from a manager mm. that looks like them. Yeah. It doesn't mean it has to be that way. Sure they should have the opportunity for it to be that way. Mm. And that is what was missing at a lot of these big box management companies. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, um, and again, I'm not saying those companies were doing it intentionally. Right. 
right? I think they were very much doing it unintentionally. Right. But it goes back to what are the practices that those companies are doing to fix that issue. Sure. And, you know, um, when I started Culture Collective, it wasn't that I couldn't have done Culture Collective at, a, at another company and said, let's do this together. I wanted to, it was important for me to do it, one, because it would be my narrative, mm. but also it was important for me for young executives to say that somebody could do it. Mm. Somebody could, somebody could, you can, you can start your own company. You can leave working at premier companies and go do your own thing yeah. and do it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that's respected and professionalized and well put together you know, it, it can happen. You can do it. Yeah. Um, and I and I honestly think, in this post-COVID world, yeah. Um, holistically, we're going to see much more independent boutique companies, especially in management. So that's interesting. That's something that uh, a lot of people are kind of thinking about. What is going to shift from post-COVID? Why do you think that? Why do you think that we're going to the the boutique agencies will start up and, and like the big box management companies won't. Yeah. And I, th- and I think, and I, th- and I, and I think it's gonna happen in management. I think it's gonna happen in a lot of different industries, including outside of music, because I think sure. what you're having right now is everybody is, there is an element of too small to fail from a governmental standpoint. Okay. Right. Well, 2008, 2008 was too big to right. fail. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's yeah. Bear Stern went under and yep. AIG. Yep. AIG. Yep. And then, this administration has really used this crisis as an opportunity to make sure that the, 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 the small business owner is taken care of in a way that their business can, can thrive. And I'm not saying it's by any means remotely perfect because right. we don't know what we're dealing with. Right. But there is an element of let's make sure that these smaller businesses are taken care of. So, But in order to take advantage of those situations, you really have to have structure around your business and mm. what you do. Um, but the, the, when you are a business owner during a situation like this, you know how much money's coming in, you know how much money's coming out, you know how you can lower your expenses. Mm-hmm. It's your business. You know, you can work directly with your bank in setting up these programs to help save your business. Right. If you're working for somebody else, right. Yeah. Um, you're hoping they get it right. Yeah. Right. You're hoping they get it right. Right. Yep. And when you're working for a service base company not like a product-based company like you know spotify Mm -hmm. right we're working for like we you know service base you're really really hoping they get it right because Mm. it trickles down Mm. right you know that essentially that company is your partner in your business so you're hoping that your partner gets it right and i feel like the more control you have over your business the more you can make sure it's done right and i think that coming into a post-covid world a lot of it was already happening before the whole gig economy and the ability for you to start your own company, right. and hang your own shingle, and have your own logo and have your own, brand, you know, yeah. you know, was a thing. Um, the one thing that was missing there with a lot of people was like, well, I don't want to take the financial risk, or I don't want to take the business risk, or I don't want to learn how to do the accounting and all that stuff. I don't want to do any of those things. I want someone just to do it for me and let yeah. me know every quarter, every year where I land. Yeah. But now you go through something like this, and you're mm. like, boy, I hope they make the right decisions on my behalf because <laughs> right. right. now my business is going to be impacted by the decisions that they make. Yeah. And that's why I think that you'll see that shift. Mm. It's a much more of boutique type businesses where someone say, Hey, this is my business. And maybe yep. I've partnered with other managers, you know, to do some best, some shared services, but ultimately it's my business. Well, the, I mean, this just the whole new industry has enabled, um, kind of the independence to thrive. I mean, we've seen that, you know, 
just at every level, but it's like traditionally, even on, you know, you needed the major record label system, even just for distribution to move physical product. It was like those pipelines and those channels is what existed before. And now that's why so many independent artists are thriving is because you don't need the whole expensive infrastructure to get your music out to the public. You just need an internet connection, basically. And so, I mean, I think we are seeing, um, you know, kind of smaller boutique at every level from distribution to independent artists to indie label to managers to all of that um every level is thriving in that in that smaller way um so well yeah i mean it's it's a great time so for your artists right now i mean i i uh to kind of bring it back around to the to the artists like um you know emily king uh she was nominated for a grammy this last year two grammys yeah two grammys this last year right and it was, um, I mean, was that the first time that you worked with, uh, like, that kind of, I guess, well, with Culture Collective, that was your first couple of Grammy nominations? It was our first couple of Grammy nominations. We had Leon Thomas, uh, who's, who's a client, was nominated for production on Rick Ross and Drake's record, Gold Roses. Oh, okay. Um, um, but, yeah, it was it, it was great. I mean, listen, to literally almost a year, because the Grammys were in February, so a year to launch. Yeah. We had two Grammy nominations with an artist that we worked with for a long time that was super supportive in, in yeah. the Launch a Culture Collective. Um, you know, and, and, you know, listen, much love to the clients that I work with that were, you know, that understood the vision that I had and started yeah. the company and that were willing to come with me. Right. And, and, and be a part of it. I mean, that's a leap of faith for everyone is mm-hmm. because it's like leaving this institution that has, you know, seemingly this um infrastructure that can support what they're doing to kind of jump with you into this whole new realm yeah yeah, yeah. and i think it, it, i think it's a testament too of artists wanting to you know they believed in what i was doing and that was driving their decision hmm. their belief in what my vision was yeah right cool and i think that that that's gonna and i, I spoke about that before i think yeah. that's gonna manifest itself in this in this younger generation where it's not just about working at a company to help build the resume, those companies have to represent the values of what they Mm. believe in as individuals. And I think you'll see that on the artist level too. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, Jonathan Azu, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is really great. quick, I want to let you know about TuneCore. Well, I'm sure you already know about TuneCore, but you might not know that TuneCore recently, over the last couple of years, has changed a lot of its platform for the better. And, uh, you know, I've been I've been talking and reviewing TuneCore uh, for the last, gosh, 10, 12 years or so. And this is the biggest update to TuneCore that they have ever done. And this is a great move from TuneCore. What they've done is they moved to an unlimited pricing plan. So where we're at kind of in the current stage of release strategy and recommended practices for how to release your music, yeah, you got to be releasing more music more frequently than just dropping an album once every three years. So to uh, accommodate this, they now have an unlimited pricing tier, which means you can distribute unlimited music for an annual price. They have also integrated splits, payment splitting. So 
whether you want to cut your cutting your producer or other collaborators, maybe some session musicians, you want to cut them into some of your streaming revenue, you can do that very easily on the TuneCore platform. And another thing that I love about TuneCore is their publishing program. They have TuneCore Admin Publishing. So, you know, I've talked a lot about this on the article on the distribution comparison chart on Ari's Take. But I wanted to let you know about these new initiatives that TuneCore is up to and everything that TuneCore is doing. Head over to TuneCore.com, check it out for yourself, sign up for a program, distribute some of your music, and you'll see for yourself. (laughs) 